scripture lesson today is from the final chapter of Matthew's Gospel. It is his account of the empty tomb and then followed by the Great Commission. Hear now the word of God. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised. As he said, come and see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead. And indeed, he's going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said greetings, and they came to him and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see you. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Thus ends Matthew's Gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord of all creation, may the resurrection of Christ to which we bear witness today both blend with and yet exceed in beauty the light of rising and setting suns, the flying cloud, the singing bird, and the breath of flowers. In the name of the risen Christ, we pray. Amen. Several years ago, I read for the first time Herman Melville's novel, Moby Dick. As many of you know, the novelist said in the 19th century, on a whaling boat off the shores of Nantucket. Among the many things that Melville does in this novel is capture the danger to all the sailors who accept the commission to live and serve on a whaling ship. Early in the novel, he describes the whaleman's chapel in New Bedford, where sailors and their families often worship before setting sail, or after returning safely to shore. Melville describes its chapel with its several marble tablets outlined with black borders, 
that are masoned onto the walls on either side of the pulpit and in the back. In the presence of these tablets, sailors, sailors' wives, and sailors' widows sit in the pews in muffled and honorable silence. Melville then shares with the reader words that are etched onto three of these tablets. Sacred to the memory of John Talbot, who at the age of 18 was lost overboard near the Isle of Desolation off Patagonia, November 1st, 1836. This tablet is erected to his memory by his sister. Sacred to the memory of Robert Long, Willis Ellergy, Nathan Coleman, Walter Canney, Seth Macy, and Samuel Gleig, forming one of the boat's crews of the ship Eliza, who were towed out of sight by a whale on the offshore ground in the Pacific, December 31st. 1839, this marble is here placed by their surviving shipmates. And sacred to the memory of the late Captain Ezekiel Hardy, who in the bow of his ship was killed by a sperm whale on the coast of Japan, August 3rd, 1833. This tablet is erected to his memory by his widow. Melville then comments, few of the moody fishermen, shortly bound for the Indian Ocean or Pacific, fail to make a Sunday visit to this spot, to this chapel. Before embarking on their dangerous mission, These mariners worship God in the most sacred space on the shore. Over the past few months, I've had several experiences with members of our church that remind me once again of how important an act of worship is prior to undertaking a great responsibility. A grown man speaking to a small group of people referring to the baptism of one of his children almost 20 years ago, grows silent, tears up, and then moves on to the next subject. His quiet show of emotion reminds me that the sacrament of baptism is a significant act of worship at the the outset of exercising the tremendous responsibility of parenting, particularly in that part of the ceremony where the parents state in the midst of the congregation and in the presence of God their intention that their child grow up to be Christ's disciple, to obey Christ's love, To show Christ's word. Since the first of the year I've conducted six funerals or memorial services. Three of which have been the second of two services held in two separate cities. 
This is a higher than normal number of funerals for Westminster in in such a short period of time. But in leading these services, I have been reminded once again of how important the service of worship is in preparing those of us who are left behind to live through the grief and with the memory of the person who has passed away. That is why we begin nearly every memorial service asking God to speak to us of eternal things, that through patience and comfort of the scriptures, we may have hope and be lifted beyond our darkness and distress into the light and peace of thy presence. The funeral service is an act of worship and it prepares the living for life without the one who has passed away. On recent back-to-back weekends, I officiated at the marriages of two couples who had each joined the church within the past year or so, and the services in this sanctuary were particularly beautiful. One couple had written their own vows, something that strikes fear into the heart of the minister. (laughs) But in this instance, the vows that they sent me ahead of time were terrific, and I didn't have to edit them at all. They expressed their love for one another, and they did so within the context of expressing their love for God and respecting the Presbyterian theology of marriage, in which marriage is a covenant between two people and their God. I was reminded again that in the midst of all the preparation for wedding and wedding reception and honeymoon, And in the midst of the family dynamics of all those who gather for a wedding, most of which are beautiful, but some of which are a little challenging, as you know, the one half hour of worship that is the marriage service is crucial in providing the couple with that for which we pray, a new frame of heart fit for their new estate. It is not just the tasks of wailing and mourning and parenting and marriage for which an act of worship prepares us. It can also prepare people for leadership and service at the highest level A few days after the election this past fall, I received a piece of writing from a member of our church who is much closer to these matters than I am. He had lived through the divisiveness of the election and on a sleepless night had, after the results, written the following. Before the majestic sweep of the inaugural ceremony, In the small, cramped sanctuary of St. John's Episcopal Church across from the White House, we set aside time for a quiet, private service of worship. As ministers, priests, rabbis, imams, and elders of various faiths, we offer prayers for the nation and its leadership, for wisdom and discernment, for moral and physical strength, 
for mercy and protection. We unofficially yet collectively seek heavenly blessing on the leader chosen by the people for this extraordinarily difficult and messy job. The president-elect, this writer says, has no speaking part in this service. He or in the future she sits and listens. Within the confined space of St. John's, even before having taken the formal oath of office, a president's obligations as our leader and a nation's hope for his success are sealed by the prayers, by the worship of the people he serves. For people of faith, worship is crucial in preparing and accepting any responsibility, any commission. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, which we just read, the risen Jesus appears to his remaining 11 disciples in Galilee and he immediately charges them with what we call the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the close of the age. Immediately before receiving this commission, The disciples have seen the risen Lord for the first time since they abandoned him on the night he was arrested. But when they see him, the risen Lord, there is a brief pause between their seeing him and him commissioning them. In this pause, in these few seconds, Matthew writes three Crucial words. They worshipped him. Between resurrection and commissioning is worship. Before the great commission comes worship. I'm going to do a digression here, but I promise it's going to come back and connect, so just stay with me. I know it's not unusual on Easter Sunday for the minister to try to explain what the resurrection of Jesus Christ might or might not be. I have engaged in such attempted explanations over the course of my ministry, and they have all failed. Is the resurrection of Christ the soul leaving Jesus' body and going to heaven, we ask? No, it's not that, for there's a body involved in the resurrection. Is the resurrection of Christ the resuscitation of a corpse? Is it Jesus coming back to life just as he was? No, it's not that either. Because nobody seems to recognize him immediately and he passes through doors without opening them. His bodily form has somehow changed. How about the power of Jesus living on through the influence he has on the disciples? 
who spread the gospel, who put their own lives on the line, who lead Christianity to become a worldwide religion, who lead it to become foundational for Western civilization, who, as the book of Acts says, turn the world upside down. Is this what the resurrection means, living on through others? Partially. But the resurrection was more than Jesus living through the influence that he would exercise throughout history. The truth is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ cannot be explained in historical or scientific terms that we have at our disposal. The resurrection of Christ is something entirely new and different in history. It is something that comes from above. It is a new creation. It is a victory on the part of God over death. It is an eschatological event that shakes the very stones of the earth as we read in the narrative and that overpowers the cosmos in which it occurs. If occur is even a verb you can use to describe the resurrection. As our Palm Sunday music bore witness last week, the resurrection is the destruction of death. But above all, in our terms, the resurrection lies beyond our ability to describe. None of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, actually describes the resurrection. All they do is give us narratives of an empty tomb or appearances by Jesus. The Apostle Paul labels the resurrection a mystery, and he describes the form in which the risen Jesus appears as a spiritual body. Is it spirit? Is it body? Is it both? Who knows? The focus of the biblical witness narrative In the theological discourse of Paul, in poetry and liturgy, is not on scientific or historical explanations of how the resurrection happened. Rather, the focus is on the power of God behind the resurrection and on the human response to the resurrection. And the human response is worship, is worship. That's where this digression connects back with the rest of the sermon. When they saw him, they worshipped him. My friends, the only real way that we can respond to the resurrection or even appropriate it is to fall down and worship. We worship the God who is more powerful than us. We worship the Christ who is enthroned on the only throne that matters. We worship the Spirit who calls into question the earthly power that we are often lulled or tempted into thinking we desire. We worship the Christ who commissions us to serve Him with our whole lives. And that is the greatest commission we could receive. Before the Great Commission comes worship. Worship is the way we respond and it is the way we prepare. So in addition to leading worship in which 
you accept your individual commissions to marry, to parent, to mourn and honor. Those of us who sit in this chancel get to observe the commissions that you accept in your lives beyond this sanctuary. We get to observe the commission to provide daily care for another human being that some of you have accepted another human being who cannot care for himself or herself. We get to observe the commission that some of you have accepted to be the one in a large extended family to whom others turn when a need arises, when comfort is needed, when wise counsel is in order, or simply when another view of the world needs to be heard or expressed. We get to observe the commission that some of you have accepted to age gracefully, responsibly. We get to observe you accept the commission to accept that a disease has entered your body, to treat it aggressively and wisely, and to face the outcome with courage and faith and the outcome is not encouraging. And we get to observe the commissions that you accept vocationally. The commission to serve the citizens of this community, of our nation, of the world in which our nation is so crucially apart through military service, through diplomatic corps, through civil service, through elected office, through journalism, through philanthropy, through the arts, through education, through politics, through the helping professions, through business and industry, through political action of all sorts. And together we in this chapel get to observe the commission that we as a congregation have accepted to preach and teach and live out the gospel through providing life and education to orphans in Kenya, through repairing homes in Alexandria and Appalachia, through providing meals on wheels to those whose only wheels are on walkers with which they greet us at the door, through providing scholarships and Sunday school for Native Americans at Spirit Lake, North Dakota. We are all commissioned by the risen Christ individually and we are commissioned as a congregation and our commissions are often greater, much greater than we perceive. In Melville's second most famous book, Billy Budd, Billy Budd is a young sailor who faces death at sea for a crime he has not committed, but in service to a chain of command that he affirms. A few hours before his death, a chaplain visits Billy in his cell. Billy is polite and respectful to the chaplain, but the chaplain soon realizes that his efforts to bring home to Billy the thought of salvation or of a savior is something that Billy is not ready to appropriate. The chaplain describes his offer as being like 
a gift placed in the palm of a hand over which the fingers do not turn. For each of us in this room, Jesus Christ has a great commission. If you are able, like Billy Budd, to accept your commission and to fulfill it without closing the fingers of your hand around the gift of a Savior, then we, like the readers of Billy Budd, will admire you, we will support you, we will applaud your heroism, and part of our support will be prayer, because that's what we do. But if, on the other hand, you've ever seen a faint glimpse of the risen Christ, a mystery you neither claim nor can explain, and are hearing, hearing again ever so faintly a commission that Christ is issuing you, then I urge you, accept the gift of a Savior. Close your fingers over it. And as you are bound to the Pacific Ocean or the Indian, fail not to make a Sunday visit to the Whaleman's Chapel, to the holiest and most sacred building in your life. Amen.